Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I pray that whatever is shared today would be extremely helpful and easy to understand. Lord, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak to the glory of Christ's name and for the extension of his kingdom. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Many people who've begun to follow Christ or who are considering following him have questions that they struggle with. And so I thought it would be good to look at some of the most common questions of faith that people have. Now, I know I might not be able to answer every question you have tied up in a neat package, but I do hope that what we cover will be helpful to you in some way. If not on your own journey, then as you help others on theirs. And I want you to know from the very beginning that I start from a position that certain things in life are true and therefore certain things in life are not true. I also believe that we can and indeed should know what those true things are because our very spiritual lives depend on it. Now, I know in the culture today, it's very popular for all points of view to be held as being equally valid or equally true. But, you know, I find that difficult because of just simple logic. For example, if I say a book cover is red and you say it's green, both of those views can't be true. It's either one color or the other. And even color blindness wouldn't affect the actual color of the book regardless of the individual's perception. Similarly, if you tell me that you feel that 2 plus 2 equals 5, I may say to you, rubbish, it's 4. But both of us can't be right because only one answer is true. If you think disagreement on what is true or not is something new, it really isn't. Even Pilate, when he was speaking with Jesus, asked at one point, what is truth? As if it all depended on an individual's opinion. I'm sure that most of us have heard people say that they have heard people say that they believe that there are many ways to God and that Jesus is just one of those many ways. And it's frustrating to them that Christians say Jesus is the only way to God. So in this lesson, I'd like us to start with the basic question, is Jesus the only way to God? Christians say that, but is it a valid claim? Obviously, though, for someone to consider following Jesus, they would have to look at what the Bible has to say about him. Anything Christ is quoted as saying about himself in this regard would be of paramount importance, and it would have to be considered. After all, his own words would be the strongest evidence of his claims. Additionally, I think that anything the original disciples taught about the way that we get to God needs to be looked at too seeing as they were there at the very beginnings of Christianity. So what did they teach about how we as human beings can be made right with God the Father? 
So let's go to the word now and first see what Jesus said about himself in this regard. At the beginning of John chapter 14, Jesus had been preparing his disciples for his departure, and he actually told them that their hearts shouldn't be troubled because he was going to God the Father's house. And he says there in verse 4, You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had been talking about going to the Father in heaven, and he tells his followers that they now knew the way to get there. I love the fact that, like us, the disciples also struggle to fully understand at times, and we see that in Thomas's response here. If Jesus was going to the Father in heaven, Thomas had no idea about how to get there. And so Jesus explains that he is the way for us to get to God the Father. If you want to know what truth is, if you want to experience the eternal life that only God can give, Christ is the way that you do that. Notice he isn't just a way to get to God. He says that he is the way. And not only that, but no one can come into the Father's presence except by coming through Christ. The fact that Jesus is the only way to God and heaven was so foundational to the early church's understanding that even before they were called Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ were actually known as those who belonged to the way. But don't take my word for it. Let's have a look at the scripture in Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 2. It was after Christ's death, burial and resurrection A Pharisee by the name of Paul was one of those main persecutors of those who declared themselves to be followers of Jesus. Of course, he was one of the main persecutors of the early church until he came to faith in Christ himself and ended up joining them and becoming known as Paul. But that really is a whole other story. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 2 tells us, that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Do you see how in verse 2 we're told that the followers of Christ were those who belonged to the way? Well, not only here, but in Acts 19, we're told about how Paul eventually went to preach in Ephesus and that many there became upset and began to speak against the way. And again in Acts 24, when Paul was brought to trial before the Roman governor of the region, a man by the name of Felix, Paul acknowledged to him in verse 14 that he himself had become a follower of the way. And in verse 22 of that very same chapter, we're told that Felix was well acquainted with this group that was called 
the way. All of this was based on what Jesus had said of himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. But there was another instance in which Christ referred to himself as being distinctive. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said of himself, I am the door or the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So if a person wants to be saved from God's wrath and Satan's reign, Jesus is the only way for that transition to occur. Again, he's not just a door. He is the one and only door. He is the only way of access to the abundant life that's offered by God. In Scripture, it quickly becomes evident that without Christ, mankind is separated from God the Father. The first disciples also taught that Jesus is the only way for our relationship with God to be restored. In Acts chapter 3, sometime after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Peter and John entered the temple in Jerusalem. And acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, they ended up praying for a lame man in the name of Jesus Christ, and he was miraculously healed. Well, I'm sure you can imagine how people were eager to hear what they had to say after that. So as soon as they had the opportunity, Peter and John started speaking about Jesus in whose name the man had been healed. And we're specifically told how they declared that Christ had risen from the dead. As a result, these two disciples were quickly arrested in Acts chapter 4, and they were brought to the religious leaders who then began to question them. Never one to be put off, Peter immediately began to speak of Christ's resurrection from the dead again, and quoting Psalm 118 verse 22, he went on to tell them in Acts 4 verse 11 that Christ was the very cornerstone of God's kingdom that they as leaders had rejected. Peter then went on to say in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, according to Peter and John, for that matter, the only way mankind can be saved from the penalty of sin, the only way that they can be spared God's judgment, is through Jesus Christ, God's cornerstone, who holds all things together. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Much later, when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, who was the young pastor of the church in Ephesus, he told him in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, Paul went on to say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A mediator is one who makes people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. So what was the conflict that separated mankind from God, that needed Christ, the only mediator, to settle it? 
It was, of course, our estrangement from God that's caused by sin. You see, sin separates man from God, and there is but one way that we can be reconciled. There is only one way to God. There is only one door, and it is through his son, Jesus, who is the one mediator between God and men, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He took the penalty for our wrongdoing upon himself when he died on the cross. His blood for our blood. We all deserve separation from God the Father for our sin, but Jesus took our punishment on himself so that we might be with the Father where he is once again. Truly, when you look at other religions of the world, they're all about mankind trying to be good enough, trying to work their way to God. But Christianity is different to that. Christianity is about how God made a way when there really was no way. And this is what God had always promised to do. In fact, in the Old Testament scriptures, they also spoke of this unique nature and work of the one who would come to reconcile us to God, to reunite us with him. The different writers in the Old Testament used several different titles to describe this person, and one of those titles I want us to look at is that of the suffering servant. The prophecy of the suffering servant was written 700 years before Christ, and God's message came through the prophet Isaiah. It begins in Isaiah 52, verse 12, where God himself speaks, saying, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. This one whom God had promised to send, his servant, would be harmed to the point of being unrecognizable. His appearance would be disfigured beyond that of any man or any human being. His form was marred beyond human likeness because of what was done to him at the hands of the earthly authorities. Consider the type of death that Jesus died, first being flogged with a multi-corded whip, studded with bone and shards of glass, so that each time the whip was pulled up off his back, it would tear up flesh with it. And then, as if that were not enough, he was crucified with nails driven through his hands and feet, and a spear finally plunged into his side after his death. Yes, he was truly disfigured and marred beyond human likeness, but it was with that shed blood that his suffering servant would reconcile many nations to God. And truly, Christ's blood has been shed for people of every tribe and tongue, of many nations. Isaiah 53 then goes on in verse 3 to say that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, 
he was despised and we esteemed him not. Remember Peter called him the vital cornerstone that the builders had rejected? Well, here we see the prophecy again in a slightly different way that he would be despised and rejected. Jesus, this promised one of God, would be held in low esteem. But according to verse 4, Christ had been sent by God for a purpose. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore the suffering that we should have. This suffering servant was sent by God the Father to take our sin, our iniquities upon himself. If you think you haven't sinned, well, think again, because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We want to go our own way and do our own thing. And quite honestly, we deserve punishment, but Christ became our substitute. Verse 8b of Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ's death. For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus, God's one and only Son, was given as a sin offering. He died on the cross between two thieves and was treated like a common criminal. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But because of the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, who came and took Jesus' body, in death our Lord was buried in a rich man's tomb. All of this happened to Jesus Christ, just as God said that it would. Though he had no sin of his own, verse 10 tells us, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, in other words, an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was God who made Jesus' life to be an offering for sin. In the Old Testament, God was clear. For sin to be forgiven, blood needed to be shed. But in his mercy, he would accept the blood of a guiltless substitute. Hence, lambs, with no fault of their own, died on behalf of those wishing to be reconciled to God. But the blood of animals only covered sin in a temporary way, and it had to be repeated again and again and again. By contrast, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, not only covers our sin, it effectively takes it away permanently reconciling those covered by that blood with God. We are his offspring through faith in Christ's sacrifice. Verse 11 says that after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And that's really speaking of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it goes on. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Christ's death has justified many. If you struggle to understand the meaning of that word justified here, think of it as being just as if I'd never sinned. He took my sin upon himself, and as Isaiah had prophesied, he endured the punishment that I deserved. He was forsaken on the cross so that I would not have to be. God's wrath was upon Jesus so that it would not be on me. But do you see that the scripture says that God's righteous servant will justify many? It does not say that he will justify all. Why? It's because not all people will choose him. Not all will decide to believe. John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We have to accept Jesus to be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul put it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is known as the great exchange. This is the only way a man can be reconciled to God in heaven. According to Hebrews 9.22, God's law teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that pays the debt that we owe. This is why he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one has done for mankind what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. No one. There's a perfect illustration of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf found in the pages of John chapter 18, verses 39 to 40. It's when Christ is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate. Now, this is a real incident, but it's going to point beyond itself to something of great spiritual significance. The religious leaders asked Pilate to put Jesus to death, but sensing how volatile the situation was, he didn't want to be responsible for what happened to Jesus. And so Pilate hit upon one final idea that might prevent Christ's death. And he went out to speak to the Jews. You see, at Passover, it was customary for the Romans to release a prisoner to the crowds as an act of benevolence, of kindness. And so Pilate offers them the choice between Jesus and a robber by the name of Barabbas. Luke's account of the event in Luke 23 actually gives us additional information about Barabbas, saying that he was an insurrectionist who was also guilty of murder. The crowd, stirred up by the religious leaders, demanded Barabbas' release and Christ's crucifixion. It's significant because in this, we see a perfect picture of salvation by grace. On the one hand is the King of glory, perfect with no fault of his own. On the other, the heinous lawbreaker Barabbas. Though not deserving of death, Christ would be the one to die. 
so that the guilty one, Barabbas, might go free. Barabbas is the embodiment of all of us. According to God's standards, each of us, like Barabbas, stand accused and worthy of death. But Christ, the innocent one, with no sin of his own, has died in our place so that we might be released from the judgment against us, so that we might become the sons of God. You may not know this, but in the language of the day, that's what Barabbas's name actually meant, son of the father. Unfortunately, we're never told if Barabbas lived up to his name, but this story clearly shows us that the lawbreaker's salvation depended on Christ taking his place on the cross. Scripture shows that Jesus is the only way we can be saved too. To say that Jesus is the only way to God isn't something negative or unloving or even unjust, quite the contrary. He reveals God's incredible love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. All of us stand accused. No matter how well we have tried to live, no matter what good people we might be, there is always some point at which we are accused, where we have not fully kept your law. Lord, I know that this righteousness is not possible through man's own endeavor alone. Lord, we are called to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has died on our behalf, who has paid our debt to reconcile us to you. Thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. We thank you so much for him. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.